0: This morning we're in 1 Samuel, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you do not, there should be one in the row in front of you. Also, for a moment, I want to plug this scripture journal. We have these out on the main table in the narthex. If you didn't grab one, please do. It's a great way to read the Word and study the Word and take notes. And these are free for you to take for your own personal study or for sermon notes. Uh, So please, take one of those. They're a great resource as well. Uh, but that's right, uh, the baby has not arrived, um, and I would have been fine the baby coming throughout the week, but as we got closer to Sunday for me to preach, I really was asking Hannah to tell the baby to not come quite yet. Um, but we have a plan in case it happens while I'm up here, um, you know, somebody's going to alert me, I'll run off, and um, and we've got someone in the fr- front row here who I think would be do a great job taking the sermon home and finishing it <laughs> off, so... So we're in good hands, no matter what. Good to see you here, George. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 5 this morning, um, as we continue our way through uh, the book of Samuel. Uh, and we're going to be reading the, uh, the whole chapter, it's 12 verses, so if you would please stand if you're able to hear the word of the Lord. This is God's word. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And well, they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city, and the hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the truth that it communicates to us. And we thank you for how it points us to your mercy and your justice and your judgment on all uh, rebellion and all um, idols, those who would uh, position themselves up against you. So, Father, would you teach us? Uh, more about who you are and how great and awesome you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, any time that we are preaching through the Old Testament, especially these longer narrative sections, it's good to take a moment to zoom out for a second and to look at the the grand narrative, so to speak, of all of Scripture. And especially as we think about what has taken place from Genesis to 1 Samuel. How did we get here? Well, if you recall, in the early chapters of Genesis, the, that there was a rebellion against God in the garden, and Adam and Eve broke faith with God, and they believed the serpent, and, and then they were kicked out of the garden, essentially. And, but God didn't stop there. He didn't say, okay, this, this, uh, this whole thing about with humans, these people I've created, they've rejected me now, Um, I'm not going to save them. No, he had a plan to save them from the very beginning. From Genesis 3 on, we read that the seed of the woman will stomp and crush the head of the serpent. And we see this promise, this covenant of grace, really implemented with Abraham. And and we call it a, a gracious covenant because we see that what the Lord wanted from Abraham, he promised him that he would make a great nation out of him, that he would have many uh, families, many sons and daughters that would come from his seed. But he just needed to believe and trust. And we see that scene where he's looking up into the stars and we see that he believed and trusted the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. That he was righteous in God's sight, not because of any work he'd done, but because of the faith he had in God's promise. And so... We see that he has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and, Ach- and Jacob has the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. They go down to Egypt. Moses leads them out of Egypt, and then Joshua takes over as, as the leader of God's people as they're beginning to enter into the promised land. And Samuel, they're in the promised land, and they're awaiting this king to come. But let's go back in time a bit to Joshua as they're entering the promised land, as they're about to conquer Jericho, he's outside of Jericho, and we read in Joshua chapter 5, there's this fascinating scene, and it's always been fascinating to me, where as he's leading Israel as the successor to Moses, and they're camped outside the city of Jericho, and they're supposed to very soon take the, the city and destroy it. So I'm sure You know, he's very nervous. He's thinking about this. this Jericho is a very mighty city, a stronghold. And as he's sitting down or lying down or perhaps waking up from a nap, the text says in Joshua 5 that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn and his sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? So very interesting, we see this person, uh, a commander of the Lord's army, he calls himself. And, And Joshua says, are you for us or against us? Are you for our enemies? And he says, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. We get these moments in the Old Testament of what we might call theophanies. At first, we aren't sure who this person is, but it's clear that they've been sent by God. But interestingly enough, this person does not refuse to be worshipped. When Joshua falls down in worship before him, he doesn't refuse worship. That should clue us into one thing. Perhaps this is more than just an angel of the Lord. But then he demands Joshua to take his sandals off. And because he's on holy ground. Do you know the only other place we read that statement? Where that is in the Old Testament? It's when God Himself is speaking to Moses. That's right, from the burning bush. So we have some hints that this is more than just an angel, but Joshua is having a face-to-face encounter with God himself, though so in the veil of human flesh. The traditional Christian interpretation of this event is that this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus, right before the Incarnation, before he's born from the virgin's womb. So what do we make of this commander saying to Joshua, no, I am not going to answer whose side I'm on. I'm a commander of the Lord. What do we make of that? It's as if he turns the question back on Joshua and asks, is Israel for me? I turned to the story this morning because it seems to be what God is doing with Israel right now in this text, asking Israel as he first brings judgment on Israel with the arks being taken, and now bringing judgment on the Philistines. Who is on my side? That's what what the Lord, that's what Yahweh is asking. Who will turn from their idols and serve the living and true God? So that's what we're looking at this morning, this idea of idolatry, those things that take our attention away from God, our desires away from Him to serve the creation. So the main idea of this morning's text is that by conquering our idols, God shows the false promise and problem of our idols and the power that God has over our idols. So we'll be looking at that through three and three ways. First, the promise of our idols. Secondly, the problem of our idols. And thirdly, the power of God over our idols. Well, first, the promise. First, the promise of our idols. Well, why do I say our idols? Why do I say our idols instead of the Philistines' idols? Well, you know, the Israelites had a more subtle idol that they were serving, even if they weren't bowing down to a statue. As Christians, we often will have the temptation to... Serve or um, admire or worship or place our desire on the gifts that God gives us over himself. The blessings we have of God over him, the giver, the gift over the giver. So our idols can be subtle. So in the last chapter, we read that, that Israel had suffered a loss to the Philistines, and then to fix that loss, they wanted to bring the ark out as sort of a way to to win God's favor, or to say, God, you must bless us since we brought the ark out of Shiloh into this battlefield. God God was becoming um, a sort of a knock-on-wood, rabbit's foot um, sort of thing that they could manipulate to their advantage. So how do we define an idol? I'm going to define an idol this way. An idol is anything or anyone you look to For what only God can provide. An idol is anything or anyone you look to for what only God can provide. Israel had turned to the ark of the covenant for success instead of turning to God. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Let's see what's happening. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and set it up brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So Ebenezer was the place of the the battle. They won the battle, 30,000 Israelites killed. They take the ark back to Ashdod, which is the coastal city of um, Philistia. So there's five major cities, and, and Ashdod is one of those cities. They take the ark And they set it inside the house of Dagon, set it up beside Dagon. Dagon was their um, national idol, a national god that they worshipped. And so for them to place the ark at the foot of Dagon was to communicate that Yahweh had been defeated. And Dagon, this idol, was lord over Yahweh. And so this is the way the Philistines thought this would go, that they would put the Ark in there. This would communicate to everybody they had won and defeated Yahweh. One commentator says the Israelite Yahweh was supposed to have come under the control of Dagon, the God of the Conqueror, right? So Dagon was supposed to have control over Yahweh, not the other way around. And we do this often with our idols. We think our idols are going to provide for us. We think they're going to promise life and blessing. Some of the major idols I think our, in our nation, in our society, in our culture, are really, you can name a bunch, but some of the greatest ones are money, beauty, and praise. And think about what some of those idols offer us. Money offers safety, ease, and status, and power. The promise of beauty offers popularity, and envy, and praise. And even think about the promise of praise, wanting people to praise you. What does that lead us to, that ultimately we are glorified? That we are glorified. Joe Carter of the Gospel Coalition, he had an article on eight areas in your life that you could examine for idols. We, we, sure to, we, we need to be uh, looking at our life and through different angles and, and see where do some idols in our heart reside? He said, firstly, he says, look at your, examine your imagination. What do you daydream about? When your mind wanders, is it to material goods like fishing boats and exotic vacations or to intangible items such as the fame of celebrity or the approval of your peers? Secondly, examine your attention. Consider the times you'd rather be doing something else rather than practicing a spiritual discipline. What activity would you rather be doing instead? Are there one or more time-wasting activities that you regularly turn to when to avoid engaging in more productive tasks? Number three, examine your finances. Most of us have what we call discretionary or disposable income. Money left over after the bills have been paid. How do you spend your disposable income? For what material goods or services are you most likely to go into debt to finance? Fourthly, examine your prayer life. How do you feel when God doesn't respond to your prayers in the way that you want it? Do you trust that he knows best? Or do you become angry and bitter? Have there been unanswered prayers that have made you doubt God's goodness or made you want to turn away from him? Think about your spiritual disciplines. Other than just prayer, think about worship. Think about engaging with God's people, reading God's Word. All those disciplines God has given us, are they slipping? Why? Are we neglecting the means of grace that God's given us to grow? Fifthly, examine your relationships. What person do you love the most? What person do you most want to please? Do you have friendships or romantic attachments that lead you away from God? Examine your relationships. Examine your emotions. That's number 6. What do you most fear? What do you most hope for? What are you most passionate about? What what gives you zeal and passion for life? And what do you most desire and what makes you extremely angry or sad? These are all little cues as to what we may be worshiping if it's not God. Number seven, examine your concerns. What do you worry about? What makes you anxious? What do you most fear losing? And and lastly, he says, examine your past and future. If you had a time machine and could travel into either the past or the future, what would you use it to change? What makes you nostalgic? What are your biggest regrets? What do you most want to happen in the future? What would cause you to despair if it didn't come to pass? See, these are all good questions just to take stock of your own heart and your soul. Where am I? What am I worshiping? What am I, or, or why am I acting the way I am? Go back. Go deeper and ask why. Use these questions to uncover deepest cravings and desires of your heart. And once you've identified a potential idol, he says, consider whether you've put it ahead of or in place of God. Pray that he will, keep, he will help you become more aware of your idols and that he'll lead you on the long, hard path of faithfulness. You see, being a Christian does not eliminate idols in your heart. Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. They're always producing, always pumping out new idols every single day. We can't wake up one day and think, oh, I've got no idols to worry about. Because idols aren't just bad things, they could be good things too. They could be your marriage, your kids, the church, or your role in the church, or your role at, in your job, your vocation. These are all good things that we can turn into ultimate things. Because the great thing that idols uh, lure you with is control and peace. That If I just have this in my life, I'll be, everything will be fixed. And that's often how the pagan idols of the ancient world work, that that if you gave the right sacrifice, you would be blessed, that you would not have drought, you would not have famine, you and your nation would be blessed by this idol because you're feeding it and you're serving it, that the idol has needs and it will give you something in return. So that's the promise of our idols. What about the problem of our idols? What's the problem with our idols? Let's look at verses 3 through 5 and when the people of ashdod rose early the next day behold dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the lord so that they took and put took dagon and put him back in his place if you're thinking there's like a tinge of humor and comedy in this text that you're if you've chuckled a little bit that's right that's there for a purpose it doesn't say it I mean, we see the Lord actually working explicitly in other parts with the tumors and affecting the city, but it doesn't actually say how or what caused the falling of the statue. But we know, right? We know it wasn't just a strong breeze or a windy day that day, and that's why the statue fell over. Right? The subtext is this is what God's doing. This is the Lord and His power and His sovereignty is knocking over this idol and falling down before the ark. And another piece of humor too, and every Israelite child who grew up hearing this story would also laugh at this, that they took Dagon and put him back in his place. What kind of God is that? That you have to pick up and put him back in his place, right? There's humor in the fact that this God is being humiliated to an extent. And so when they rose, in verse 4, they rose early on the next morning, and behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Just a brief background on Dagon. Dagon was this Mesopotamian god, this uh, Ugaritic god, uh, The the Philistines had traveled across the Mediterranean at some point, and this was not their original god, but they'd adopted this god. And so he was the the god of this area, probably the god of grain or harvest. He was known in those mythologies as the father of the storm god, Baal, who you hear about a lot in the Old Testament, Baal. And so this is the god they've adopted, He's he's their national god, and uh, one commentator says the statue of Dagon was found prostrated before the, Ark of, uh, Dagon in, uh, before the Ark of the Lord in a position of adoration. And the next night it was mutilated and defiled. So first Dagon is worshipping the Ark and then he is mutilated and defiled. Another commentator says in the ancient world severed heads and hands were battlefield trophies that assisted the victor in establishing the correct body count so this was common practice to cut off the head and hands of your enemies so you'd know how many men you killed that day the lord had therefore vanquished dagon in his own temple a premonition of things to come so utter humiliating this idol this idol fails and falls and that speaks to a truth about our own idols that Idols always fail to deliver. They never deliver what they promise. Have you ever been let down, as, you, as you're thinking about Christmas coming up, have you ever been let down by a company when they fail to deliver on time? Like when Amazon Prime shows up in two days when they said, next day shipping. Like What's up with that, right? Next day shipping, that should be next day. I sometimes get nervous when I go, so Hannah and I like to go to uh, nice restaurants from time to time when the budget allows. And I get nervous sometimes at those restaurants because I don't want to have a bad meal at a very expensive restaurant. I I don't want to order bad food. So I don't get very adventurous. I want to go with something that I know I'll like, right? the the hamburger or the steak, right? not the exotic fish. But it's never good when someone fails to, to deliver what they say they're going to do. And idols, but here's the problem with idols, those things you worship, they never deliver what they promise. They always overpromise and underdeliver. And that's because idols at the end of the day are powerless to give you what they offer. Dagon was powerless. He was just a statue. C. S. Lewis in screw tape letters has a very good insight. Uh, the screw Tape Letters is, is this really inventive uh, book that he wrote where it's from the demon's perspective. And this, this, this demon is sort of teaching this mentor of his of how to um, win over or persuade and, and, and take a Christian right, away from, from God. And he, he writes this about idols. He says, what you want to do, Wormwood, who's this uh, mentee, An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. To get a man's soul and give him nothing in return. That's what really gladdens our father, Satan, our father's heart. Right To get a man's soul and to give him nothing in return. That is the key with idolatry. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. You want it more and more. And it gives you less and less and less until it's got you. Throughout the Bible and the Old Testament, we read that idol worship transforms you into what you worship. You become, as G.K. Beale says in his book, we become what we worship. We have this common saying you are what you eat. Well, the same thing works with idol worship. You become, you resemble what you worship. In Psalm 115 and Psalm 135, it says, Those who make them, those idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. And that leads us to the fact that idol worship ultimately becomes self worship. You turn in on yourself. That's why earlier I read from Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 23 says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And all, all people exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Notice what it says there, that we, we exchange the glory of God for images, the first thing, of mortal man. That we worship people, that we worship ultimately our own image. That's why I believe he uses homosexuality as an example of idol worship because it turns in on itself. Right, where a man is supposed to love his wife in marriage and not another man, that, that view of sexuality, that unbiblical view, is, is really a, a describing what idol worship is, ultimately. It's a turning in of the self. And so, idol worship ultimately becomes this, that how, can I, how can I be safe? How can I be prosperous? How can I be at peace apart from God? It, it's all about me at the end of the day. It's all about what I want. And it becomes worship of ourselves. And our idols hurt us at the end of the day and everyone around us in order to consume us. That our expectations on your idol, your expectations on whatever idol you have will ultimately crush it and destroy it because it cannot stand up to the weight of your expectations. Right? If, if, if you are looking for ultimate peace and life And happiness and joy in your wife, you will destroy your wife. If you're looking for ultimate peace and happiness and joy in your husband, that weight of expectation will crush your husband. If if it's your kids that you have your hope in, it will crush them. Because you'll have this amazingly high standard for them, and they'll never live up to it. And you'll wonder why your relationship with them is crumbling as well. We cannot worship something and have it stand up and, and be strong. It will, cru- it will be crushed by the weight of our expectations. The only thing that can hold up the weight of, of that joy, of that life, of that need for peace, is God himself. He's the only one that can carry that weight. And that's what we turn to finally in this text is the power of God over our idols. The power of God over our idols. look at verse 6 and following. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for that his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So we see that it's not just the the statue that's fallen over, now the hand of the Lord is upon the uh, Philistines. And they're experiencing tumors and they're experiencing all kinds of uh, panic and confusion. And they say, the ark can't stay here. We need to send it off somewhere else. And so let's try to send it to the next city over. So they do that. Look at verse 8. They sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with this ark they answered, let the ark of, the, of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel. So see, so they're saying, let's see how the, the Gath people fare, right? We, this is not good for our city. Let's see, see how they do with this idol or this uh, ark of the covenant being there. Verse 9, but after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Okay, So they quickly realized this plan's not working to send it to a different city. Let's go to a third city. So verse 10, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So they don't even let the ark come to the third city. They're like, we've heard about what's happening at Gath. We've heard about what's happening in Ashdod. Do not set that ark in our city. You're trying to kill us. In verse 11, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords. So all the lords get together and they say, okay, we must send this out of our country. We must send this back to Israel. So they're starting to wise up, right, to what's going on so that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city and the hand of God was heavy, on, heavy there. And the men who did not die, so obviously many people died, were struck with tumors And the cry of the city went up to heaven. So what we're seeing here clearly is that God will expose our idols for what they are. That God is powerful and our idols are not. And we see this phrase throughout these verses, the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon them. This is the hand of God. It's an anthropomorphic statement, right? God's physical hand wasn't present. But it's this way of saying His judgment was upon this city. One commentator says, The lesson of chapters 4 and 5 is clear. Neither Israel nor Philistia, not even Dagon himself, can control or resist the will of the sovereign Lord, whose presence, though enthroned between the cherubim, surmounting the Ark of the Covenant, is not limited by what location, and therefore cannot be manipulated by the whim of whoever happens to be in possession of it at any particular time. See, what he's saying is not even Israel who thought they could use and manipulate the Ark for their benefit, right? they, they weren't right about that, and, and the Philistines were not right about how they were trying to use the Ark. A God is sovereign. Another commentator says, The panic-stricken Philistine people decide to send the Ark of Yahweh around their cities from Ashdod to Gath, then to Ekron, In this way, the God of Israel marches through the enemy territories victoriously. So God is essentially marching through this country, being victorious over each city it's brought into. And when the Lord starts fighting for his people, he often throws the enemy into a panic. That happens many many times in the Old Testament, that as, as God is winning, the people that he's fighting against are confused and panicked. And isn't it true that people who are consumed by idolatry are sometimes the most confused and panicked when their gods begin to fail them? Right? Isn't that true? When somebody's relying on something for their god and that god fails, that is when they are most panicked, most confused, most anxious. Do you want to see a panicked person? See them when their idol begins to fail. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. And in verse 11, it says that they've had a deathly panic, literally meaning a panic leading to death, a panic that brought death. But we read an interesting statement in verse 12 that the cry of the Philistines went up to heaven. How do we take that? What does that mean? Is there a chance, perhaps, that some of the Philistines turned to Yahweh in faith that day? Perhaps. Perhaps. I mean, think about, think about how truly scared the Philistines probably were. People are just like keeling over dead from tumors, and it's spreading rapidly. Some, some think because mice are talked about in the following chapters that this could have been like the bubonic plague as well that God was using. Michael Horton says, the real world is the one in which the triune God is the central character in nature and history, that that's reality. And the illusion is that we're in charge. That's the illusion of this world, that we think sometimes that we're in charge. It's autonomy that is the myth. And the sooner we raise our eyes to heaven, the sooner our sanity will be restored. He continues and says, Revival breaks out in the world. When Christians show up to church and hear from God and his word, it's so simple. We don't need spectacular miracles. We need basic obedience. With basic obedience, Christians will have something different and compelling to offer a fearful and anxious world. Brothers and sisters, the world's greatest need right now is faithful Christians who go to church and read their Bible. They, the world doesn't need a crazy, extraordinary miracle. All Israel needed to do to be a good witness to the Philistines in this chapter was to entrust themselves to God and not treat Him like they could manipulate Him with this ark. Basic obedience is what, what the world needs. And, and when we are just, just very basically, ordinarily Christians who, who trust in Him and are faithful, and those seemingly minor things, that will show the world who they should fear. And in their panicking and in their confusion, they will hopefully, through our prayers and through the work of the Spirit, turn to God as they see what we're living for. For the first time in their lives, the Philistines were experiencing the gift of a true sense of the fear of the Lord. Right? We can say that this was bad for them, of course, this judgment, but what it was doing was really a gift. It was showing them who they ought to fear. Not Dagon, but Yahweh. Here is a God that can cast our idols to the ground. Here is a God that can put tumors in our bodies. Dagon and any false idol that we come up with cannot do these things. He's powerless. And so as we consider that, the power of God over our idols should give us courage. I want to go back to Joshua for a second, where I started, where Joshua is in the front of this, this commander of the Lord. Michael Horton writes, From then on, Joshua's fear was turned to absolute confidence. Right? To be in the presence of this all-powerful God gave him confidence. Because not he, but God himself was the conqueror. And yet the sinful tendency of all the Israelites, like all people, made their tenure in the land precarious. The book of Joshua opens with a promising new day, with God leading his people to conquest, but ends with Joshua pleading for redoubled commitment to the law. It's as almost as if he feels that he's alone in the commitment by the final chapter, where he says, choose this day whom you'll serve. But as for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord. So brothers and sisters, don't be confused. Judgment begins in the household of God. And God brings judgment on these Philistines. Bring, when he brings it on these Philistines, it's meant to grip Israel's attention as well. That if we are on his side, if we truly fear God, it will drive us to him and not away from him. A, a, a healthy fear of the Lord actually attracts us to God. doesn't repel us. And then we will have awe, respect, and urgency to obey him and worship him and serve him all our days. One scene in the New Testament as I close that came to mind as I was thinking through this is Jesus in the boat with the disciples and the storm is raging and he is sleeping. And they are despairing of their lives thinking they are going to die. So they wake him up. And they say, Jesus, why are you sleeping? We're going to die without you. Here, save us, help us. They were afraid. But you know what they became more afraid of? is after he calmed the storm. They were afraid. Because who is this, they say, that can even calm this storm and control this world? He is the one we should be afraid of. And it's not not a kind of fear that repels you. It's a a fear that that attracts you and drives you to him, that draws you closer to him and gives us confidence for our lives. So that's what Israel needed and that's what they need to be reminded of again and again as we do. So as we think about these things, let's be drawn back to him with confidence. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing story of you conquering over these idols, and all other gods, that you are victorious, that you can be trusted, that you are powerful, and thank the Lord that it isn't up to us to conquer and to rule and to reign alone in our own power, but it's done through your own power, God. So thank you. Give us a healthy fear of the Lord. We need it. Our society needs it. Remind us that the most faithful and um, most, the best way to evangelize is to be a faithful Christian right, and cling to the Word of God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.